Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy. Since its launch in 2015, Endy has become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. The company is headquartered in Toronto, and its signature product, the Endy mattress, is 100% Canadian-made. Endy is changing the way Canadians sleep, and their mission is simple, to provide Canadians from coast to coast with the best possible sleep. For $50 off any Endy mattress, go to endy.ca and use the promo code OPPO. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, Canada's most recommended meal kit, dedicated to making home cooking fun and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh delivers pre-measured and pre-chopped ingredients with step-by-step instructions to your door in an insulated box. So, when you get back home from a busy day, you get to spend more time doing what you love and less time cooking. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash podcast and enter promo code OPPO when you subscribe. From Canada land, this is OPPO. Nevastrovia, Jen! On this week's show, we're donning our Yustankas, heating up the borscht, and taking a look at the specter that is haunting Canada. The specter of communism, Jen. Wee! Gotta love all of those uh, gulags, famines, and purges. Communism kills, <laughs> Justin. Look, we devoted almost all of last week's show to calling conservatives fascists. So, fellow basement warriors of the right, sweet, sweet revenge is upon us. Today, we discuss the state of the left. With the posties being legislated back to work and the auto workers out of the job, the labor movement is finding friends in Trudeau's red liberals somehow. So we have to ask, is the union still keeping us strong? And with the state of global politics evolving into an Orwellian hellscape, I have to ask the token lefty over there, what is it that the left actually wants? This episode of Oppo is brought to you by a Canadian industry that isn't dying. Homegrown mattress companies. Andy is transparent about its sourcing, materials, manufacturing, and design. All materials and manufacturing used to make the Endy mattress are sourced within Canada. By keeping manufacturing local, Andy can avoid duties, currency exchanges, and international shipping, keeping prices as fair as possible for their Canadian customers. And no worry about NAFTA effects. Andy's quality is second to none, and its pricing is even better. With a smaller price tag than its competitors, their mattresses cost between $675 and $950 Canadian dollars. That means that even the largest mattress, a California King, costs less than 1000 bucks. You simply can't find that kind of quality-to-price ratio anywhere else. Andy bypasses traditional brick-and-mortar retail and focuses on a seamless online shopping experience that's simple and convenient. Go to andy.ca and use the promo code OPPO for $50 off any Andy mattress. Jen, it feels really tough to talk about the Canadian left without talking a little bit about labor. And I've wanted to do an episode on the labor movement for a while, but there was never really a super good reason to do so. 
it's actually very interesting that the labor movement in Canada hasn't warranted more attention on this podcast until now. And I can only blame me because I'm clearly uh, a neoliberal oligarch. I also blame you. Uh, but in the last few weeks, there's been a couple of huge stories that have opened the question of, you know, what the hell is a union for? Just in the last you know, month, when November, uh, the Trudeau Liberals legislated uh, Cup W, the Postal Workers Union, back to work as they went on a series of rotating strikes across the country. And we found out the GM was shutting down its Oshawa plant, laying off 2,500 people and potentially leading to a whole bunch more layoffs throughout the auto city that is Oshawa. So it's kind of an open question now. What does the union do? Union rates have been declining for decades. And now this is one of the maybe crucial moments for the future of the labor movement in Canada. And it's not super clear what's coming next. One thing is for sure is that uh, Unifor president who represents all of the Oshawa union workers is promising a fight. It's not entirely clear what Jerry Diaz, the president of the union, actually wants, but he's promising that it's going to be pretty extreme. So sisters and brothers, buckle up. We're going to be at it very soon. We'll be in touch with you what the plan looks like. We're going to be meeting with the government. We spoke uh, to the provincial federal NDP today. We've got everybody working with us. But the bottom line is this is going to be very aggressive and it's going to be very aggressive soon. We'll be in touch. All right. So I'm going to apologize for being a bit Alberta here. And I don't like to get into the pissing contest about who's had it worse, Alberta or the Golden Horseshoe. But my province over here in the West has lost about 80,000 jobs since the 2015 oil crash. And when our economy tanks, I kind of feel like central Canada mostly doesn't care. Or worse, lectures us about how the future doesn't belong to fossil fuels, which is probably right. Yet when GM closes down a plant because it wants to focus on more electric and autonomous cars, somehow this becomes like a national crisis. Nobody just shrugs their shoulders and says, well, this is the future. The writing's been on the wall for a couple of years. It's time to transition, folks. So what the fuck does Diaz think is to be done here exactly? Well, I think that's a really good question. I mean, you, you saw just in the last couple of days, people throwing about some pretty wild ideas. The Toronto Star had uh, a column suggesting that maybe the federal government should nationalize the plant to just start building its own cars <laughs> which is which actually i have to be honest with you i think is fantastic i think that i actually really love that the toronto star's like chief business columnist is basically a communist i think that's glorious <laughs> that's you know i mean you'll never be taken seriously by people in business but you know I, who's to say that that perspective is missing from toronto media i mean i'm great i think it's great you gotta love the red star so you know first off i think it's kind of a false dichotomy to just say you know when alberta loses jobs everyone shrugs their shoulders when oshawa loses jobs everyone freaks out the reality is the federal government does obviously care a whole bunch about people losing their jobs in Alberta. That's why it bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The government has done a fair bit. You can say it hasn't done enough. It's done a fair bit to try and keep the Alberta oil industry afloat and to try to basically get rid of the discount for Canadian oil. Now, there is an argument to be made is, you know, are both sectors dying economies? Because, you know, I think it is totally fair to say, hey, listen, you know, GM's going towards electric cars. Maybe it's time to pivot. We're not going to be making Oldsmobiles for the next 30 years. I don't even know if Oldsmobile is a GM product anymore. But, you know, I think that's a totally fair argument. But the reality is we currently have 2,500 people, soon to be much, much more, who are going to be out of the job very, very soon. And that's going to potentially have billions of dollars of ramifications for the Ontario economy. And there's no substitute, just like there's no real substitute in Alberta. So, you know, I think this is almost to the heart of the, the tension in the labor movement right now. You have to fight for the jobs that are on the table that could potentially be lost. But the union, and, and this has, I think, been an internal struggle in the union movement for years, the union movement needs to find 
something to advocate for the next generation. We've seen some of the lowest rates of unionization in Canadian history, especially for young workers. And that is a huge problem for labor right now. So a couple of interesting points, and that is, firstly, it wasn't just the Canadian plant that got shut down. GM shut down a whole bunch of plants right across North America. And it's part of a longer term trend that pretty much all of the manufacturing sector in North America is facing toward automation, right? Where you have all of these companies sort of making the shift towards more autonomous vehicles, more electric vehicles, and fewer people required to actually make these vehicles. So like, I'm just kind of unsure about what the union hopes to do to reverse that trend like i just and i think the union's unsure too right you know back in the day there used to be a pretty clear line of argument for unions i mean basically canadian labor would say globalization and free trade is bad we have to keep jobs localized here you know for every deal we sign that's another thousand jobs that goes to mexico or elsewhere and on the flip side they basically made the case that we need to nationalize these industries to you know to balance profitability with the good of canadian workers both of those options are pretty much off the table nationalization doesn't make sense in the Canadian economy right now in most respects. I think you can we can debate about what industries may be potentially nationalized, <coughs> the banks. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to uh, free trade, you know, closing NAFTA, shutting down NAFTA is, is no longer an option. So I think, you know, the, the union movement has found itself really adrift here and it's played out totally on the political level. That's why I think to some degree you've seen the union pivot a little bit of, you know, from being staunchly NDP to kind of being ambivalent about what center-left parties in power. You know, as long as it's anything but Tory, I think the union movement has been pretty happy over the last couple of years. And, you know, the best example is Jerry Diaz's relationship with Trudeau. Over the last couple of years, Jerry Diaz scored a huge win by having Trudeau cancel the Chinese takeover of Acon, potentially losing thousands of union jobs. He has Trudeau basically fighting for better labor standards in the new NAFTA deal. Uh, and he has Trudeau basically pledging to do whatever he can in terms of these GM layoffs. So it's been a very interesting pivot to see the union movement kind of, in some respects, relegated to playing defensive. Yeah, interesting. The only thing I would point out here and challenge your position a little bit is that I've just pulled up a bunch of stats from uh, Canada.ca's Employment Social Development. I love stats. It's noted that unionized workers as a share of all employees has actually stayed pretty stable since about 1999. It's just over 30%. And it's wavered from like 31.8 to like 33.9. But I mean, these are not dramatic drop offs in union membership here. So like, where's this idea that unions are like under threat or or, or struggling for relevance or, or, or power here? Yeah, so you know, it's certainly true that you're around 1999, you have the stroke of the millennium, uh, it was basically the bottom of the barrel for unionization rates. Uh, if you go back, if you extend that timeline a bit further back to like 1980s into the 1990s, that number was upwards of 35%, almost 40%, over 40% for male workers who are significantly, who were significantly more unionized. That went straight down uh, through the 90s, and and it hit a low water point of about a third of Canadian workers. And then it's plateaued for like 20 years. That's right. So it's actually not gotten significantly worse over the last, you know, decade or so, you know, but it's fair to say that the good old glory days of, you know, when Bruce Springsteen used to write songs about steel towns, those are over. You know, we've seen about, you know, at 10 points shed off of the, uh, the total rate of unionization in this country. The closure of the steel towns is not because people stopped unionizing, right? I mean, it, that kind of has it asked backwards. A lot of these companies and industries and plants basically cease to be competitive in the current space and automation's a huge part of that productivity is a huge part of that and essentially these unionized jobs went away that's what happens yeah that's entirely right and actually that and, and that is 
brings me to a huge win that I don't think it was Jerry Diaz specifically. It was a bunch of American auto workers as well. But in the new NAFTA deal, Muska or whatever, you know, the Canadian equivalent Muska, is. Uh, Kumska. Kumska. I like it. Kumska. Sure. Be great. I will never get used to it. It's NAFTA 2.0. That's actually something super interesting that Jerry Diaz and the American auto workers actually won from NAFTA is an attempt to actually stem the tide of exactly that from happening. Because, you know, an early critique of, of globalization and, and free trade of, and all of this is basically that, you know, those manufacturing jobs here just can't compete with cheaper labor from elsewhere. And I think back then the argument was, you know, our jobs are going to go to Mexico, you know, uh, we're going to, you know, lose all of these good union jobs to foreign countries. That has been an interesting pivot for labor in North America, where they basically changed their argument to, you know, it's not about not setting a free trade agreement with that country. It's about actually fighting for their workers' rights at the same time. It's actually resulted in some this new provision in NAFTA where basically it's requiring some 40% of cars made in Mexico to be built by workers who are making above $16 an hour. That is huge. I'm actually kind of surprised that GM decided to shut down these plans before this deal was signed because there's a real chance that a lot of Mexican automotive work is going to basically cost similar amounts to Canadian and American production, which is a huge win for the labor movement. And you know, I think we've we talk a lot about the death of the decline of labor, but you know, they just won this massive victory, and it's actually going to result in I think some of those jobs sticking around North America. Doesn't it sort of undermine the argument that this is a massive victory when GM announces that they're closing down a thwack of plants in North America, though? Yeah, I mean, it totally does. I mean, and, and oh, okay, this, fair enough. Cool. This is the reality. I mean, you, we, the Canadian government spent a whole bunch of money basically subsidizing automotive jobs for cars that have been around for decades. What we really should have been doing and, and what we could have done if we kept that investment around and the Harper government hadn't sold off those shares at basically at a discount or almost at cost, we could have actually had a say in requiring some of those electric or hybrid production facilities come to Canada. I mean, you know, that is a real possibility. We, it, those plants require a little bit more special specialization, a little bit more investment. And it's not nonsensical to think a whole bunch of them could be in Canada. You know, and, and this, I think, is the big failure of labor over the last couple of decades. It's been a lack of forward thinking. It's been hmm. you know, about preserving old plants, not building new ones. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I realize that I'm kind of the uh, right wing crony here and I'm supposed to sit here and rail against unions. But to be honest with you, I have no philosophical problem against unions. I have no problem with collective agreement. I think that, that if, if that is the best way that you as an individual can maximize your market potential is to band together with a group of other people to negotiate for better conditions, wages and, and all that kind of good stuff, then, you know, power to you. <laughs> I have I have no objection to that. All right, Pete Seeger, calm down. <laughs> um, my, my, my only objections to unions are, are sort of pragmatic ones. It's A, I don't like it when, you know, the head of Unifor starts endorsing um, political parties and thus <laughs> makes all unionized journalists look like they're in the pocket oh, of I the NDP. That. Like, like that's obnoxious to me. I have found personally that unionized newsrooms or union shops where I've worked with have been so eager to protect older workers that they've often been totally willing to throw younger workers out on their asses. I, I found that unionized newsrooms have tended to be uh, very slow to adapt and very unwilling to try new things and change. And that's been in stark contrast to the non-unionized shops where I've worked in. So like, I don't have a philosophical uh, objection to, to unions, but I do have to wonder uh, the degree to which having a heavily unionized sector undercuts your country's industry's competitiveness. And thus, in the long term, you know, you, you get these short term bumps and gains in your wages and your, your working conditions only to in the long term wind up losing your jobs to countries that are willing to undercut those things. Well, you know, and I think the positive trend is that 
that those, you know, cheap labor countries willing to, you know, undercut our productivity, they're getting fewer and farther between. You know, we actually are starting to build in labor standards into free trade agreements. We are starting to build in minimum wage requirements and free trade agreements. And again, that is a huge victory that um, the Canadian labor movement has kind of got out of, of Trudeau. And Trudeau's kind of, you know, shinier, happier free trade philosophy is a huge win for the Canadian labor movement. Well, it's a huge victory until you realize that almost all these jobs are being replaced by robots. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why we have to get the neo-Luddites in to break down all the automation. <laughs> Arts and crafts, yay! <laughs> Though I will say that you know there is one I think kind of you know dark cloudy sky off on the horizon, uh, especially for Trudeau if he wins another term or you know five more terms or whatever the fuck you know however long he stays in power, there will be a point where you know that friendship I think is going to break down. It's very hard to keep labor happy, especially if you're a liberal. The first recession that hits, I don't know that that relationship is going to stay as rosy as as it has been thus far. And you know I think you know there's still people in labor who are very unhappy with the way in which some heads of those unions have cozied up to the Liberal Party, basically saying, we've played this before. Buzz Hargrove, the former uh, United Auto Workers president, who functionally endorsed strategic voting to get the Liberals in power and, and keep the Tories out, became a pariah in the in the labor movement and in the leftist social democratic movement in Canada. Because honestly, if Trudeau is going to be anything like Paul Martin or John Cretchen, and there's lots of evidence to suggest he will, a lot of those you know happy, sunny, pro-worker policies might not stick around if the Canadian economy starts shedding 2% of GDP every year. And, you know, I look forward to all the accusations of Trudeau being Judas when exactly that happens. Well, didn't they just legislate the postal workers back to work? Didn't they just legislate the postal workers just? back? <laughs> Here's my my sort of overall, you know, very removed bird's eye take, because of course, I'm now a entrepreneurial freelancer with no protections and no union dues to pay to anybody. I don't know quite what the end game is. Like if you're in 2018 and you're the head of the labor movement right now and you are trying to stay with the times, you're trying to protect people and you're trying to maximize the power of, you know, people in the collective against the voracious corporate interests of the multimillionaire CEO and masters. What's your end game? What's your leverage and what's your end game? And and like it can't just be trying to keep the local Oshawa GM plant open because or trying to even nationalize that plant. Because that that's that doesn't make any sense to me economically. That's not I, I think that you've just made this point. It's not forward thinking. It's not thinking about where the future jobs are actually going to come from. It's it's just an attempt to try and preserve, you know, the nostalgia of a, of a 1940s manufacturing golden age. I think that's totally right. And really, in these scenarios, you know, going back a century, it's been it's supposed to have been labor parties and social democratic parties who were supposed to, or in some cases, Marxist parties, who were supposed to have provided the leadership uh, beyond that. Because, you know, unions are kind of almost inherently reactive. You have to protect the pensions. You have to protect labor standards. You have to protect the factories. And it was supposed to be the political wings of those parties that were supposed to go and carry the red flag into battle and 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 win new rights and, and open new doors for, for the working class uh, and functionally to break down the class divide altogether obviously in canada is that true anymore <laughs> i think to be continued we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that after the break Oppo is supported in part by hellofresh canada's most recommended meal kit dedicated to making home cooking fun and convenient each week hellofresh delivers pre-measured and pre-chopped ingredients with step-by-step instructions to your door in an insulated box so that when you get home from a busy day of annoying the Canadian political class and arguing with people online, you're going to spend more time doing what you love and less time cooking because you've thrown your phone in the insulated box and thrown it out the window and you never have to hear from any of them ever again. Fall into a new dinner routine this season and enjoy the delicious victory of a home-cooked meal with HelloFresh. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca podcasts and enter promo code OPPO, O-P-P-O when you subscribe. 
So, Jen, I want to play you a video, and I want you to tell me what you think. Last time a man said that to me, Justin, it didn't go super well, but I'm open. <laughs> oh, God. I promise you it's not that kind of video. <laughs> there is a global struggle taking place of enormous consequence. Nothing less than the future of humanity is at stake. All around us, we see the status quo is failing. The top 1% now controls half the When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. World's wealth. While hundreds of millions of workers remain trapped between poverty and precarity. So since all of our listeners who are at home or driving their tanks to work can't see what we're playing, it's basically about as dire as you can imagine. Soldiers in the streets, wildfires, Elon Musk smoking a blunt, George Shutter. W. Bush and Bill Clinton talking to each other. Just one horrible disaster after another. But this is basically the trailer for something called the Progressive International. It's the marriage of a new movement called DM25. It's in Carpe Diem 2025, which is maybe the worst name for anything ever. A coalition vying for seats in the European Parliament. It's led by former Greek Finance Minister Yanis Varoufakis and the Sanders Institute, led by Jane Sanders, the original Bernie bro. I would just like to point out, DM25 is what happens when you decide to not use capitalist PR agencies to come up with your branding and name, okay? It's so bad. Uh, And best I can tell, the movement has come together with approximately the level of excitement as you would have when you hear the phrase, Michael Moore has a new movie out. Their member parties have virtually no seats in any uh, national legislature, and I haven't really noticed anyone talking about them. It has gone over silently. But anyway, so this video is supposed to be they're coming out. They are new. They may end up doing very well. But this whole movement is supposed to be sort of an encapsulation of the global left progressive kind of post-labor movement. And I am having such a hard time figuring out anything they're about. I got to be honest with you, Justin. I mean, I'm watching this video and there's a lot here that I could nod along to. But I'm a bit confused. Like, what do they mean when they say solidarity? What, what, how are they going to achieve that? What concrete goals are they looking for? How are they going to fix any of these terrible problems they ignore? Like, I just, I don't quite get what the goal here is. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, this group, the Progressive International and some other kind of leftist groups around the world, have in some ways tried to co-opt the nationalism of the far right into something a little more shiny and happy and smiling and and kind of saying it doesn't have to be mainstay, third way, neoconservative governments or the far right. 
you have another option. But also kind of saying it doesn't have to be the old school labor parties who have sold out and, and fucked around for decades. You have another option. It's these new progressive parties represented by Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and all that. If you come up with any more false dichotomies, I'm really <laughs> no. But I, I, mean, I don't. I don't know. How, you've actually fit like four false dichotomies into this is one their sentence, language. which is amazing to me because it, it's like. I don't even think that was possible. If you look at their website, this is all of their branding. It's like you don't have to choose between these people, these people, these people. We're around now. Like they have defined themselves against everything else, which is, is a political strategy I find just the fucking worst. I mean, you know, in the same way Donald Trump can't stop defining himself by not being Hillary Clinton, these guys can't stop defining themselves by not being uh, Victor Orban or, you know, Tony Blair. Uh, but, Good job. You know, ne- Set that bar high. <laughs> well done. Nevertheless, you know, when they talk about solidarity, you know, I think think this is what they would say it's not the solidarity of your you know your crusty old union boss uh, talking about solidarity between workers who might work in a steel plant and workers who might work in a coal plant but who are in most cases just you know all white guys the new solidarity is supposed to be this intersectional um you know we're going to fight for women's rights and workers rights and queer rights and refugee rights and, and everything at the same time and we're going to be the sort of big tent progressive movement best um, of that, fucking luck with that well that's it i mean you know trying to corral those that number of cats is an impossible task, and I, I love them for trying it, and I'm so confused about what they actually want to do. Okay, so Justin, I gotta be honest. I'm just a neoliberal neckbeard who basically fears that disaffected <laughs> Marxist millennials will hound me off Twitter, usher in the revolution, restrict all our personal freedoms, nationalize Sephora, and line me up for the bullet. We've spent a lot of time talking about labor, but to be perfectly honest, I don't know who these people are beyond what Jordan Peterson tells me they are. <laughs> yeah, well, I, are so, you the neo-Marxist cabal who's trying to like institute a new collectivist totalitarian global state or what? We all aspire. That's like I, I watch this video and it's like it kind of it kind of seems like you maybe are. I like I don't I don't know. Well, it's interesting because you know if I had to peg these guys on, on the political spectrum somewhere, they're not the far left. There's somewhere quite a bit to the left of you know the traditional Labour Party in the UK, quite a bit left of the NDP, somewhere where Jeremy Corbyn is, somewhere where Bernie Sanders is, somewhere where Greek Alex Tsipras, the Prime Minister, is. But they're trying to sort of model themselves into being a bit more revolutionary than they actually are. They're not quite as far left is, you know, the red-green movement and the kind of, you know, long-standing Marxist parties of, like, Norway and Sweden, but they're pretty left by global standards. I mean, you know, they, they wrote this kind of manifesto because they have to call it a manifesto. And That's op- very comforting, by the way. That's, I, know. I really like it when my leftist parties start <laughs> writing manifestos. That's... That's wonderful. That's that, Historically, that's just gone fantastically well and the, every time. The opening line is, there is a global war being waged on workers against our environment, against our democracy, and against decency, which I, I love the decency add-on. That's just so weak. You know, but I, I'm making fun of these guys, but, but the reality is I'm still having a hard time seeing how these movements are going to work. You know, Bernie Sanders did very well in the U.S. because Bernie Sanders is personally popular. His ideas themselves, if you ask the average person, yeah, they're popular as well, but there's no coherent movement really pushing around those ideas, uh, even within the Democratic Party or outside of it. Yes, there are popular kind of revolutionaries in that party. Uh, Alexander Cortez is a great example, even Elizabeth Warren, but they don't have the magnetism that Bernie Sanders does, and they're not going to be as successful as he was, and even he didn't win. Yeah, Bernie Sanders, super hot, so hot. <laughs> so, like, the personal magnetism is really hard to avoid on that one. And in the 
the UK, I think a lot of people really want to like Jeremy Corbyn. And that whole anti-Semitism thing that just keeps on coming up again and again. I don't know, man. Like, it's just... Well, that's right. That's what I was going to say. You know, he's waffled so aggressively on Brexit and a second referendum, and he has completely bungled his response to seemingly quite prevalent anti-Semitism in his own party. So it's, it's really hard to even point at a single movement anywhere in the world that is being successful on this kind of, you know, platform. They're out there. But, I just but, want to make yeah, an observation here. Now, I'm coming at this very much from the outside. I mean, I'm probably a little bit more tapped into the conservative thread, the conservative movement. So I kind of kind of have a, a feel for the brainwaves a little bit coming up from that side. But I'm not really tapped into the left and I don't pretend to be. But um, a couple years ago, uh, I covered the uh, national NDP convention because it was held up in Edmonton. And of course, you know, we have an, an NDP government here in Alberta. So Rachel Notley was kind of one of the stars of that show. But so is the Leap Manifesto. And Stephen Lewis, who's uh, Abby Lewis's father, and those sorts of people, right? And and what I found fascinating, from, very much from an outsider's perspective, was what appeared to me to be the extraordinary schismatic nature of that conference. On one side, you kind of had the Alberta NDP, who I would call, you know, pragmatic, prairie, populist kind of left-wing positions, people who were advocating for pipeline jobs, people who were very rooted in traditional labor movements. And then you had on the other side of this schism this emerging much younger, what I would sort of call identitarian cultural leftism that was more concerned with like intersectionality, who was more concerned with um, solidarity, who was more concerned with, I would say, race and identity sort of issues and, and an environment than with class issues, the class issues of your kind of thing. So I found that fascinating to watch from the outside. But you know, I'm wondering how much of what I saw just on that convention floor was reflected in what's happening in sort of global leftism. Oh, that is that is the fight in global leftism. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to ignore that. I mean, you know, basically uh, the Ed Dave Miliband wing of the Labour Party, you know, were the Tom Mulcair, maybe uh, Rachel Notley wing, and they got completely thrown over a bridge by the Jeremy Corbyn faction. That has come with its own new fucking realm of of fights and you know bickering. The reality is the what you call the identitarian cultural Marxist or whatever you refer to them as. I mean, what is there is there a name for the schism that I'm I'm not trying to be offensive. I I just don't know what the name for that particular side wing of, of leftism is. I don't know why the left has been so bad at naming itself stuff. It seems like the right has a new name for every type of, of nut job who comes around, no, but the left is whittier. not so great on that. We're what can I <laughs> yeah, actually, that's fair. There is kind of just the new left, and the new left, it's not that they don't care about class, it's just that they put class on a list of issues that they, they think they need to tackle, you know, both sexism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, racism, and then classism. I mean, it's all kind of in one big, you know, pot of issues they want to go after, and, and that that does leave them into conflict with, uh, you know, the the old guard of of labor and of the left because the traditional socialist point of view is that once you get rid of the class divide, everything else will come. Well, and I also would point out, like when you when you have left wing parties kind of abandon class as being sort of the unifying fight or virtue of their existence, what winds up happening is that working class people tend to feel extremely alienated from those parties, and well, instead of exactly going right. to the liberal party, yeah. they go f- just to the complete other end of the spectrum. They go to like vote. Doug Ford. They go to vote Donald Trump, right? I mean, I, I will it, say I think that that phenomenon is a little exaggerated, but it's unquestionably. It's happening. a little exaggerated, absolutely. But it's. I'm just saying, like, and I'm, ta- and I'm not talking about something that happened in the last election. I'm talking about a broader generational trend here. So, so this is actually a big fight happening right now in the French left, and it's one that I'm absolutely fascinated by. There's basically a leadership struggle amongst uh, the the French Socialist Party, and it is between a faction that that is a kind of intersectional uh, left who want to go fight for refugees and who want who want France to open its doors to. Um, you know, those fleeing war and persecution and the other end who are more concerned with class who are basically saying, 
if we let these people in the country, we will not have jobs for our you know white working class. And mm-hmm. basically saying the white working class is angry at migration. And if we take them for granted and we start you know pandering or you know start following an ethical compass and you know fighting for basic human rights of refugees and migrants, then we're going to alienate those voters and they're going to go vote for Marine Le Pen. And that is a huge fight that's happening right now. And you're going to see that fight replicated in all sorts of different places. The PQ in Quebec famously kind of uh, Quebec's answer to a Labour Party had exactly that fight in the last campaign. But what is even more interesting is that you saw uh, the PQ self-immolate, partly because they were having that fight. And one of the big beneficiaries of that was Quebec Solidaire, arguably the most left-wing party north of Mexico in North America. They are very much modeled after what kind of this progressive international is talking about. They are kind of modeled after the red-green, you know, Nordic, uh, you know, socialist parties. And they are kind of proposing, um, you know, a lot of the more radical ideas uh, that are kind of being bandied about worldwide. And they're doing relatively well. They won 12 seats in the last election. And I would put money down. They might win more next time around. So the left is is having a hard time. I mean, you know, there is so many examples of what works and then countervailing examples proving the opposite works. There is no clear formula for how you succeed as a leftist party these days. And it's leading to this huge kind of civil war happening below the surface. And and no one's quite sure what direction to go. And I think really the litmus test is going to be people like Jeremy Corbyn. It's going to be whether or not Alexis Tsipras ends up winning another term in Greece. It's going to be whether Jagmeet Singh, you know, can do well at all. It's going to be who gets nominated in the the, uh, U.S. Democratic primaries. But right now, we don't know what works. And, you know, I think this debate over tactics is leading the left to fall all over itself. And that is what is, I think, kind of opening up this divide where you have a lot of moderates, a lot of green parties and a lot of right wing folks kind of, you know, rushing in to try to kind of fill that void while the left squabbles amongst itself, which is so typically left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like, no, the left doesn't want you anymore, white working class worker. You can culturally identify with this form of sort of kind of poisonous conservative politics, right? I mean, that's that is who is trying to suck up the energy that's being left from this divide on the left. I mean, I'm always kind of of the philosophy that like, I, I want a healthy, rational right wing sphere and a healthy, rational left wing sphere. And I want these two types of spheres to to balance and play off one another. You know what I mean? Like, I never totally. want one side to win. I think it's actually like societies work better when you have both sides kind of knocking heads and challenging one another, but not in a way that's corrosive or, or toxic or vicious. And that's what I think we've fundamentally lost, like on the right. Like you talk about the right as it's some kind of monolith here. And I think that that's the same mistake that I made last week when I was talking about the left. The right isn't a monolith. It's like 15 competing tribes um, that are trying to define what conservatism is as the whole movement gets swamped by sort of grievances and, and populism. And I think that that's kind of similar to what's happening in the reverse on the left. And the whole result is just all of the, um, socially cohesive elements of our society are being poisoned and and turned against one another as all of these intergroup factions fight amongst themselves and between themselves. I want to talk about what bothers you most about the left wing. Uh, I have a few ideas that I'm willing to throw out there. For example, the entirely off-putting sexism of the Bernie bro cadets, the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And if you want to talk about, you know, the weird divide between class and intersectionalism within the left, I mean, there really isn't anything that better exemplifies that divide than the fact that Jagmeet Singh is wearing Rolexes and lecturing farmers on their privilege. I don't like it when politicians and their supporters are shitty. I don't know that any of those things really define the left. Anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is awful, and they really need to purge that issue, and I I think they're almost there. 
Bernie bros are insufferable. If one more person tweets at me that we sound like Chapo Trap House, I'm going to fucking lose my mind. And that We're go- not Chapo Trap House. <laughs> that goes to you too, Jesse Brown. Yeah, but you know, I think all those are our sideshows. What bothers me most is that the left has kind of, I think, enraptured in its kind of own internal debates that it has failed to put forward any sort of coherent, forward-looking idea on how to fundamentally change things. You know, I am really fond of, of you know, sensible right-wing parties who put forward kind of grandiose ideas on, on how things should work. I, Not I know, that there I, are I, any of those left. I mean, I know. On. That's kind of it. You know. <laughs> I kind of like nation-building conservatives. I like conservatives who are talking substantially about how to change the the global economy and and try to grapple with the uh, negative effects of automation on uh, the Canadian economy. I want to hear conservatives talk about that, just like I want to hear the left give me substantive ideas on how we can uh, deal with the societal issues around that. And the NDP have been completely asleep at the switch here. They have not been a forward-thinking party in more than a decade. Okay, and that's where we go to... (laughs) Where the fuck is the NDP? <laughs> you know, in this whole debate, you know, we're talking about Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders and Socialist International and, and and where the fuck is the NDP in this debate? You know, the NDP have fundamentally grabbed a few trinket policies that they've had in their platform for roughly a decade and they've tried to pretend and pass them off as though there's something substantive and revolutionary. They're not. Stop fucking talking to me about a $15 minimum wage for federal workers. That is substantially insignificant in the Canadian economy. Stop fucking talking to me just about dental care. Dental care is great. It is not the overarching policy idea that will bring Canada into, you know, substantive social change. And I think it is good to talk about substantive social change because that's what politics should be. This is where you're going to start talking about the basic minimum income, aren't you? This is where we start having this conversation. I honestly... I dread this. I dread this conversation. I'm indifferent at a income. I like the idea. I'm into a party proposing it. It's not a panacea. It's not the only idea I want to hear from people. You know, I want to talk substantially about, you know, whether or not creating a government-owned bank is a sensible idea in, you know... Oh, Alberta's, in, got, in, Alberta's got a government-owned bank called the ACB, right? There you go. So, and actually, it's kind of interesting if you want to talk about government-owned banks. Uh, to some extent, ATB is able to do investment that regularly banks can't do. That's right. For example, in, in the cannabis industry, we've seen ATB actually be really forward thinking and put a lot of money toward cannabis growth in Alberta, while the more conventional banks for a really long time were terrified of the industry because it was so new. Yeah. So like, there's some actual, some interesting things that, that a governmental bank can potentially do. So if you want to have that conversation, let's have the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I beyond just talking about bickering about whether or not we want a carbon tax or, or cap and trade fund, you know, let's talk about a green sovereign wealth fund that will create this so-called green new deal that I keep hearing kind of vaguely talk money. about it. Well, let's have a conversation about that. Where are we going to get the money? You know, I like the idea of a, a Robin Hood tax or a, a stock transfer tax or a stock sale tax. There's great ways to actually cool off our completely speculative stock market system and create government wealth in the process that can be used to create oh, the infrastructure wow. we need for the next century. Like the, wow. I'm not saying that this is what we need to do. It's an idea that I want to hear someone talk about. And the okay. only people who are going to talk about that, I think, will be the NDP unless someone else wants to surprise me. The stupid stock market. Let's just... <laughs> 
burn that all down. It's not okay. like we need that. No, we, we definitely would make governments wealthier if we could just, you know, fuck the stock market over. It's a great idea, Jess. I see no downside. Let's do that. One cent per stock sale? If whenever you sell a stock, you pay a one cent government duty? That's eh, not so crazy to me. You know what? That's not full-on Bolshevikism. Okay, but it's a step. It's a step Bolshevism. 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 That was the word I was looking for. Bolshevism. There you go. Yeah, good job, Lefty. Look, I mean, look, it's not that I'm necessarily against some incremental changes. I just don't want to wind up with the bullet in my head, okay? <laughs> we'll both be against the wall eventually, Jen. Yeah, but me first and you second, okay? So let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> That's it for Oppo. We are back in two weeks. Let us know what you think by getting in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast. Commons is back next week, and if you haven't been listening so far this season, you've been missing out. Go give it a listen. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media, and our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. The music was by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is bullet. We're also going to end on this great clip. Uh, this has been making the rounds on conservative Twitter. It's Justin Trudeau's attempts to explain gender-based analysis at the G20. I mean, I've actually had gender-based analysis explained to me, Justin, and it made sense to me. Yet when I hear Justin Trudeau talk about it, it sounds like the most ridiculous and offensive thing in the world. (laughs) So here you go. You might not say, oh, what does a gender lens have to do with building this new highway or this new uh, pipeline or something? Well, uh, there are gender impacts. When you bring construction workers into a rural area, there are social impacts uh, because they're mostly male construction workers. How are you adjusting and adapting to those? That's what the gender lens in GBA plus budgeting is all about. These are all things that we've been doing, not to be nice or to be better or to be moral, but to be smart about getting the very best out of all of our citizens and making the very best out of our economy because women entrepreneurs tend to make Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.